Well, let's turn now to the instruction from the Heidelberg Catechism as we uh, prepare to hear God's Word on the Eighth Commandment. What does God require of you in the Eighth Commandment? That I do whatever I can for my neighbor's good, that I treat others as I would like for them to treat me, and that I work I may get a little bit ahead of myself in the sermon, but the point here is to take note of the positive instruction of the Eighth Commandment. You know, if you just read that, if you just sort of accidentally turned to it and you didn't know that today's sermon was on the Eighth Commandment or where this came from, you might not you might not think, well, this has anything to do with the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. Oh, yes, it does. It has to do with the positive and the spiritual application of the Eighth Commandment. So for the purpose of being open to hearing God's Word, let us ask His blessing. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your law, which is holy, just, and good. And we pray that You would open our hearts, enlarge our hearts, that we might run in the way of Your commandments, that we might walk in Your ways and keep Your statutes for the glory of your name, through Christ, who has fulfilled the law, and who alone is our perfect righteousness. For his sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Now I invite you to read the Decalogue, the moral law of God, uh, from a pew Bible. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. Perhaps by now you don't really need to read it, since you have committed it to memory over these many weeks. Let us hear the word of God. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord God, and the jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love out of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the Sabbath day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in it, and rested.
grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. And to his name be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. Amen. Well, this is part two of two sermons on the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. Now, next week, if the Lord wills, we're going to push the pause button on this series through the Ten Commandments. And we're going to shift into the season of Advent as we move toward Christmas and through Christmas tide to the day of Epiphany. And then we're going to return to the commandments 9 and 10 in January. But since we're going to be taking a break from this series after today, I, I first want to review and highlight some very important general principles about the Ten Commandments before we look specifically at the Eighth Commandment this morning. Now, I am repeating myself. I'm doing that on purpose. I'm doing it deliberately because I I want us all to, um, as we work our way through the specific commandments, I, I also want us to keep the big picture in mind and have a framework, have a lens through which we look at all the commandments and the law of God. Sometimes uh, among Christians, there's confusion about what does the law have to do with the Christian life. Well, let's just review some high points, and I hope you're taking notes, and I hope you'll look back and think on these things. The Ten Commandments also called the moral law of God, reflect the moral character of God himself. Think of it this way. The commandments are God's definition of what is good and what is evil. The Ten Commandments are God's definition, clearly revealed, of what is good and what is evil. And so the commandments are not merely arbitrary rules, like rules of a game or arbitrary rules by which God, which God just made up to test us. No, no. They express the moral character of God, and, and in doing so, they express not only the righteousness of God, but also the love of God for humanity. That gets us to point number two. The commandments are good. God is good, and His commandments are good. And His commandments are for our good, the well-being of all humanity. And remember that the commandments were given at Mount Sinai to instruct the old covenant Israelites as to how to live in liberty and peace and prosperity in the earthly promised land of Canaan. Well, likewise, for us and all people, the Ten Commandments are for our good, for our liberty, our peace, and our prosperity, at least to a relative degree in this fallen world. Now, number three, for the Christians specifically, the commandments are not the way of salvation, but they are to be the way of life for those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You remember the prologue to the commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's God's own declaration of what he had done for the Israelites by his grace, his mercy, and his power. They were to live in response to that grace. Well, we, the church of Jesus Christ, 
We're the new covenant Israel. We have experienced the true and greater exodus. The exodus from the slavery of sin. Deliverance from the dominion of the devil. Victory over death and the grave. Is that not an exodus? Through the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us, by whose blood we are covered, so that death passes over us. Do you get the connection? Saved by His grace, mercy, and power. The Ten Commandments, therefore, in the Christian life, show us the way of grateful obedience in response to the grace of God in Christ. The Ten Commandments show us the way of grateful obedience in response to the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. The Ten Commandments, therefore, show us not how to be saved, but how to live in grateful obedience because we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And following from that, now number four, the Ten Commandments, therefore, are of great importance for our growth and maturity as Christians. This is what I, this is what I hope really is being impressed upon you and upon your children. I think this is something that is really missing from contemporary evangelical Christian culture, at least in America. We don't get the connection. Well, the Ten Commandments provide the standard for for our sanctification, for our growth into conformity with the likeness of Jesus. Think about it like this. We say we want to be more like Jesus. What does it mean to be more like Jesus? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean just being nice. It means loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to be like Jesus. And that's the summary of the Ten Commandments. That's the life that Jesus lived, a perfectly obedient, sinless life. His life was the perfect embodiment of the moral law of God. Jesus lived in perfect conformity in every way to the Ten Commandments. And he did that, by the way, for the sake of our salvation. And therefore, the Ten Commandments in very real and concrete and practical terms show us what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to grow into his likeness. I hope you get the point, because this is really one of the main reasons that Pastor Jonathan and I embarked on this extended series through the Ten Commandments. It's for the sake of your growth as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's all about Christian discipleship. It's all about walking the talk. It's about the Christian discipleship of your children and your grandchildren. And that's the reason throughout this series we've provided excerpts from the catechisms, especially the larger catechism. You have an extended teaching there, a a scriptural teaching from the larger catechism on your insert for your sermon notes. Now, we don't do this to waste paper. We want to show you the deep and varied ways in which the commandments are to be applied and followed in, in our lives. Christian discipleship. 
I hope you will avail yourself of these resources. I hope you're taking them home, reading, studying them on your own, discussing them with your spouse, with your children, with your grandchildren. The series through the Ten Commandments is all about Christian discipleship, walking in His ways. Now, it's very true that a series on the Ten Commandments ought to show you your sin, convict you more deeply, show you your need of a sinless Savior, call you to Him more urgently? Yes. And I hope that 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 has happened in your life as it surely needs to happen in mine. But beyond that, perhaps even more so, I hope that this series is showing you how to live more faithfully, more fully as a disciple of Jesus Christ in very practical terms in real time. And that leads me to the fifth and final point of this review. You see, in Christian discipleship, true obedience to the Ten Commandments is not merely external and literal. It is that. But more than that, it is also internal and spiritual. True obedience to the Ten Commandments is not merely external and literal, but also internal and spiritual. So, true obedience, internal obedience and spiritual obedience to the Ten Commandments. You see, now follow me on this one, it has to do with the spiritual transformation of our lives. It has to do with the spiritual transformation of our own character. It has to do with the spiritual formation and transformation of our own conscience. It has to do not only with our actions, but also with our attitudes. It has to do not only with our deeds, but also with our desires. It has to do, you see, not only with external rules to follow, but also the internal inclinations of our hearts. The spiritual transformation of our lives such that we really want to walk in the law of the Lord, such that we truly desire to keep God's law and observe it with all our heart. This comes only through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we seek to grow in grace. We ought to pray for this kind of spiritual transformation in our lives. Take a look at Psalm 119, which is one long extended prayer about desiring to honor God by walking in His ways and keeping His commandments. For example, verse 10, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Verse 18, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Prayers that our lives would be transformed by the Spirit to be more nearly conformed to the likeness of Jesus with the evidence in our lives of keeping God's law internally and spiritually as well as literally and externally. Those are just a few examples of the kind of prayers we ought to be bold to pray as we seek to grow in grace as disciples of Jesus. After all, think about it like this. One of the promises of the new covenant spoken by the prophet Jeremiah 
The new covenant that would be fulfilled in Christ, that, that has come in Christ. One of the promises of the new covenant is that God himself, by the Holy Spirit, writes his law on the hearts of his redeemed people. Jeremiah 31, 33, the Lord declares, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Or likewise, Ezekiel chapter 36, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my ways, keep my commandments, observe my statutes. What's the definition of a spirit-filled life? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in obedience to my commandments. That's the spirit-filled life. That's the evidence, one of the evidences of a spirit-filled life, that our lives are, are conf being conformed to the likeness of Christ as he himself embodied the law of God. Well, that's a lengthy review of general principles about the commandments, but I hope it'll be helpful to you as we now turn to the Eighth Commandment in particular. Last Sunday, Pastor Jonathan covered the prohibitions, the negative side of the Eighth Commandment. Today, we're going to look, uh, for the most part, not only at the positive requirements of the commandment, but also the positive basis of the commandment. Let me begin by asking you this question now. What is the Eighth Commandment all about? What is the big category? You know, all of the commandments have a big category. Honor your father and mother. That's about all authority over us. You shall not murder. Big category. Life. Protection of life. Promotion of the well-being of life. You shall not commit adultery. What's a big category? Human sexuality, sexual purity, as opposed to sexual immorality. What's the category? You shall not steal. The category is the world of economics, the world of finance, the world of work, the world of the fruit of our labor. You see, you shall not steal, as Pastor Jonathan pointed out last Sunday, implies the ownership of private property, and therefore it protects private property. Let's take it a little further. The Eighth Commandment affirms the good, that is to say the blessing, the, the God-ordainedness of private property ownership. You know, that's a hot topic in America today. We're not going down that rabbit trail, but just make a note. We are where we are politically because of the, the absence of a biblical worldview in the public domain. Don't be distracted by that. Let's come back together now. What's underneath it? How does this reflect the character of God? Let's think about it. After God created Adam, what happened next? The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to... Work it and keep it. God put Adam in the garden to work it. Adam was created by God to be a worker. And this was before Adam sinned, before creation fell under the curse of sin. The point is this, work is a good thing, a God-ordained thing, ordained by God before sin entered the world. Work is very much a constituent 
purpose of human life. Work is one of the primary means and ways by which we are to glorify God on the earth. And work, even in a fallen world with all its frustrations and failures, can be one of the most fulfilling aspects of human life. Men and women, as here's the thing, men and women as rational, purposeful, conscious workers reflect the image of God because God himself is a rational, purposeful, conscious worker. We were created to be workers because our Creator is a worker. And let me say, now the words work and worker are not restricted to employment. That's, that's a different category. We all have our work to do. I will say that full-time stay-at-home mothers are the hardest working people on earth, and they do some of the most very important work on earth. The way you manage your home and your home economics for the glory of God therefore falls under the Eighth Commandment. Likewise, those of you who are retired but who are managing your accumulated resources, which God in His good providence has given to you, you are in that sense continuing in the work that God has given to you as stewards of His blessings. Don't confuse work with employment. But the point here is that in relation to the Eighth Commandment, we were created in the image of God to do work on earth, whatever that may be, whatever form that may take, for His glory. And it is ordained by God as right and good that humans created in His own image who work honestly in this world should benefit from and enjoy the fruit of their labor. We were not put on earth to be slaves. Humanity was created in the image of God. Each individual human has individual dignity. That individual's work contributes to, the, to that individual's dignity, and therefore that dignity is to be protected. That dignity is to be protected in part by the protection of the fruit of his or her labor. And therefore God, in his goodness and in his righteousness, declared, you shall not steal. It's worth remembering that Jesus referred to the devil as a thief. And that the first sin... Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden was, in essence, a theft, a taking of what was not rightfully his. So as we consider the negative prohibition, that ought to be enough. You know, Jesus referred to the devil as a thief. Whose side are we on? Adam's sin in the garden was a sin of theft. Whose example do we wish to follow? It ought to be enough to give us pause whenever we are tempted. Whenever we're tempted to take something that is not rightfully ours or to cheat someone out of something that is rightfully his or hers, we ought to think, Again, whose side am I on? But the Eighth Commandment applies to more than, mere the than merely the prohibitions of stealing, just as the Fifth Commandment has to do with 
uh, all of the, I've recited the, the ways in which the various commandments come in big categories. The, the, the eighth commandment has to do with the whole arena now of financial responsibility, financial stewardship. It has to do with our money. It has to do with our property, our worldly belongings, not only the protection of them for our benefit, but also our stewardship of them for the good of others and the glory of God. It has to do with our money, which is God's money, our property, which is God's property, our worldly belongings, which belong to God. It has to do with this major category of our life, not only for the protection of them and not only for our good, but also for the good of others and the stewardship and the glory of God. So you shall not steal commands us positively to work diligently. Jonathan touched on that last Sunday, not to steal from our employer by laziness, slothfulness, shiftlessness, distractedness at work. It commands us to positively to work diligently for the glory of God. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. It calls us and commands us to manage our finances responsibly, to plan wisely, to live within our means, to practice delayed gratification with regard to material comforts, to do whatever is in our power to avoid financial stress, to avoid financial disaster, so that we won't put ourselves into a situation of temptation to steal. See the logic? You shall not steal, I'm repeating myself, commands us, we ought to teach our children early to work diligently manage our finances responsibly, plan wisely, live with our means, and to be charitable toward those in need as an expression of the love and mercy of God. It's very interesting. We find a very specific positive application of the Eighth Commandment in Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 3, which says... Paul addresses the Christians in Ephesus. Let the thief no longer steal. Let the thief no longer steal. So evidently, there were former thieves among the believers in Ephesus who had come to faith in Christ. And obviously, that could, that could apply to every congregation in every nation. Let the, let the thief no longer steal. If he's come to faith in Christ, if he's been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, if he's been set free from the dominion of the devil, he's had his exodus in Christ, leave Egypt, leave the old way of life behind. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather 
positive shift, positive application. Let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Look at, the, look at the social revolution that goes on in that one sentence. Let the thief no longer steal. Let him work honestly with his hands to provide for his own needs and so that he might provide for the needs of another who just might be in a situation of temptation to steal. Break the cycle. Break the cycle. The principle of providing for one's own needs and the needs of one's family through honest work is found throughout the Bible. The book of Proverbs is filled with that. The letters of Paul, uh, the theme recurs again and again. And you know, it used to be known in this country, in this nation, as part of the Puritan work ethic. Remember that? Do you remember that? I know some of you remember that. I really don't know for sure, but I do wonder whether the Puritan work ethic is taught in public schools these days with a positive, in a positive light. I don't, I don't know. Perhaps it is. But we're in a different cultural, are we not? We're in a different cultural setting. Why? Why? Because we have no biblical worldview. We, we have no foundation on the moral law of God. Right? So why shouldn't everything be free? Well, you see, the, the Puritan work ethic, providing for one's own needs and being charitable towards others, being responsible for your own uh, financial well-being in as much as you are able is a positive application of the Eighth Commandment. That's my point. This is where it comes from. But, it, but again, not only for our own needs in a self-centered, individualistic way, but for the needs of others. Everything is entrusted to us by God. God owns everything. He owns everything that we think that we own. It all belongs to Him, and as a matter of fact, we need to remind ourselves that we, if indeed, if indeed we are in Christ, then we belong. We belong to Him. What is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort, body and soul, in life and in death is that I do not belong to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So in a very real and practical sense, the Eighth Commandment in its spiritual, internal, and positive application really is all about stewardship for the glory of God. The stewardship of our lives, the stewardship of our finances, stewardship of our time and everything that we have because it all belongs to Him and it is to be entrusted. He has entrusted it to us to use for the purposes which He has ordained for His glory. So, this is the time of year, each year, when we're called to evaluate the stewardship of our lives, whether financial resources or time or emotional energy or personal pursuits. 
So think, we could think about it this way. If we fritter away our financial resources, fritter away without a plan, foolish spending, crippling debt, without a concern for the needs of others, without a commitment to support the church of Jesus Christ with the resources He has given to us, isn't that stealing? Isn't that stealing what belongs to God to spend only on ourselves? The prophet Malachi rebuked Old Covenant Israel for their faithful, faithlessness in this way. He spoke the word of the Lord saying, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, says the Lord. You say, we say back to God, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you, says the Lord, are robbing me. The prophet Malachi takes the Eighth Commandment and rebukes the people of Old Covenant Israel for robbing God of what is rightfully His, the tithe and the further contributions. Well, that applies to God's new covenant people as well. We don't have a high-pressure stewardship program here at Covenant. Never have, and I'm glad we don't. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't take financial stewardship seriously, beginning with the tithe. So some basic questions are, do you tithe? That means 10%, that's what the word tithe means, 10% of your income to support the work of the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the starting point. So do you have a financial plan? Is that part of your financial plan? Is that part of your budget? Above, then, above and beyond the initial tithe are free will offerings and thank offerings, proportional giving above the, th above the tithe, which may also go to specific gospel Christian ministries for those who are enabled to do so. But in order for us to give, and let me say, you know, you get a billion solicitations in the mail Good causes, maybe some not so good, I don't know. But you know what I mean. You get them every day. 20 solicitations every day. You don't have to feel guilty about not giving to all of them. Okay? You don't have to feel guilty. God calls you to tithe to the work of the gospel ministry, primarily located in the local church, and then beyond into Christian-specific ministries. And then there may be very, very good works that's done that's not specifically Christian, but let's, let's make sure what our plan is about our giving and where the, 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 the vast majority of that giving goes for the work of gospel ministry. Lots of good secular causes out there, and, 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 and non-Christians support them very generously. The work of the gospel ministry is of the first priority for Christian giving. But in order for us to give freely, cheerfully, generously, we've got to understand that it all belongs to the Lord, and we belong to the Lord. And if we've given our hearts to the Lord, then our tithes and our offerings will freely follow. If we fritter away our time and our energy with one busy distraction after another, one overcommitment after another, one more thing to do because mm, 
she asked me to do it, so I'm kind of feeling guilty if I don't do One more thing after another, running here and there, helter skelter. We don't even have time for our children to sit at the table with us at supper. We need to look at that. If we don't have time for our spouse and energy, personal energy for our spouse or our children or the family of the church and its ministry, then are we not, in effect, stealing? Stealing time. Stealing from our family, from our children, from our church family, from the Lord God Himself. If we're too busy for the kingdom of God in our lives, we're too busy. Could we do that one more time? If we're too busy for the kingdom of God in our lives, we're too busy. You shall not steal. Take another look at the Eighth Commandment. See how big and broad and practical it is in its spiritual and positive application. Ask yourself if the way you handle your money, your time, your personal energy reflects faithfulness to God and commitment to His kingdom. And we all fall short of this, I know, and it, but it, this is a check. This is the purpose of the commandments. This is Christian discipleship. Are we, walking the talk? Are we walking the talk? In what areas do we need to improve? Or to what degree are you stealing from God and from your neighbor? Think about this as we close. What did God withhold from you when He gave you His Son? What did Jesus withhold from you when He gave you His life on the cross? What does it mean to you? Of what value is it that through Jesus Christ, in union with Him, because you belong to Him, because He bought you with His blood, of what value is it to you that you have an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved for you in heaven. Brothers and sisters, by His poverty, He has made us rich. By His poverty, He has made us rich. We are the beneficiaries of an incredible and infinite generosity and magnanimity beyond description. And so therefore for us as Christians, the Eighth Commandment, spiritually and positively applied, means this. Freely, freely, we have received freely let us give. And to God be the glory. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for the riches of your grace in Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you for your commandments, for the way in which they show us how to follow Jesus in faith. Help us, we pray, 
Strengthen our souls. Convict our consciences. Consecrate us more fully. Convert us more deeply. That we might take joy in living as your people, by your grace, to the glory of your name. Amen. Our affirmation of faith today focuses on the providence of God. I invite you now to stand in response to the gospel. There are two questions for your responses. Christian, what do you understand by the providence of God? How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? With the patience of God.